how did things ever get so far? Royalists, and indeed Presbyterians, in every colony were probably asking themselves that in 1644, but nowhere more so than in Bermuda, Virginia, and Maryland. In slightly different ways, but at the same time, these royalist-dominated colonies became the first in the Americas to really feel the effects of the war in England. You're listening to Rejects and Revolutionaries with Sarah Tinsalpola, a podcast tracing the origins of America from the Tudor era to the 20th century. The context is the same as the context we discussed last week. Parliament was starting, though not irreversibly at the beginning of the year, to beat the king. A new parliamentary commission to govern the colonies was led by the Earl of Warwick, and it had already issued some declarations, though it was in no position to enforce any of them until the king was fully defeated. It announced, among other things, that one of the goals of colonization was to further the Protestant religion, and it ordered colonists to refrain from implementing reforms until Parliament had decided on the future political and religious course that England and its colonies should take. Bermuda's problems, though, started when its ministers expressly disobeyed that last order. The colony had four ministers, one of whom was either a Presbyterian or an Anglican, It's virtually impossible to tell which at this point, and it's actually pretty irrelevant, as we'll come to see. The other three, though, were Congregationalists. In fact, they were close followers of New England Congregationalists, regularly corresponding with the ministers there. Their names were William Golding, Nathaniel White, and Patrick Copeland. And in 1644, Bermuda had just undergone a governor change, this time to William Sale, another staunch advocate of the Congregationalist cause. Sale also helped ensure that his council was controlled by Congregationalists. So, though the majority of Bermuda's population was Royalist, and though at least half of its Puritan population was Presbyterian, As of the end of 1643, Congregationalists held the majority of all positions of power in the colony, and their Presbyterian English overseers were preoccupied with the war at home. So, empowered both by Puritan assent in England and the distraction of the Presbyterians who would otherwise control the company, the Congregationalists seized their opportunity. So at the end of January, the three Congregationalist ministers withdrew from the Church of England, formed their own covenant modeled after those in New England, and announced that they would only administer the sacraments to those who both submitted to their covenant and were approved by them. Overnight, the vast majority of the colony's population found itself cut off from access to any religious services. People were appalled. The New England Model Church was 
unbearably radical for Bermuda's relatively conservative population. In fact, it wasn't just radical as if it was pushing something that they might fundamentally have agreed with a bit too far. They felt that the principles guiding the movement were simply wrong, drawn from the worst sorts of movements in England and Europe. Presbyterians and Anglicans suddenly felt that they had a whole lot more in common with each other than they did with the Congregationalists who now controlled their religious life. There was no room for compromise, discussion, or toleration. Governor Sale threw his civil powers wholly behind the ministers, supporting their movement of religious exclusion with a policy of civil pressure to submit, and the island was soon dominated by a leadership which can only be described as tyrannical. Anyone who so much as questioned the Congregationalist ministers was summoned and interrogated before the Governor's Council, a council on which some of the Congregationalist ministers actually sat. They quickly made life unbearable for the fourth minister, and he left Bermuda, cutting off the last remaining access to religious services for any colonists outside the congregation. Even marriages stopped for the vast majority of the island's residents. The most infamous victim of the Congregationalist tyranny in Bermuda was a man named Richard Beek. Beek was a 74-year-old Presbyterian teacher. When told by one of Bermuda's citizens that Nathaniel White, quote, was the supreme head of their church next to Christ and none above him, Beek told the man that he was treating White like a demigod and giving him credit and praise which was due to God alone. Beek soon found himself arrested and put in the colony's jail for five days with no protection from the winter cold or rain. Granted, Bermuda doesn't get that cold by the standards of most places, but it does get down to about 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and a 74-year-old man trying to sleep with nothing to keep him warm or dry on a 60-degree night is not a good thing. They kept him like this for five days until White came by the jail to confront him personally about his error. Beek said that White's manner was outwardly pleasant, but he ended his lecture by saying, And it is for this that you will smart. So the charm was clearly only skin deep. The next day, a warrant was served summoning Beak to come officially before the council, and there he was sentenced to prison for five weeks, after which he was put under bond for good behavior for the foreseeable future. I have suffered and am suffering, Beak wrote to Presbyterian lawyer William Prynne. He called White a most seditious, turbulent and hateful malicious person, as crafty and subtle as the devil, and said that any colonist who had tried to tell the company what was going on had been prosecuted by the court. If Christians, in grief and distraction of soul and conscience, shall sue our rulers for some relief, 
then we shall be presently summoned to an assizes and there undergo such penalties as shall be censured upon by the court. Richard Norwood was another Presbyterian and the headmaster of a highly esteemed school in Bermuda. In fact, it was so esteemed that people had funded his school from England and sent their children from England to Bermuda to study with him. And he tried to stay out of the controversy. He didn't want to jeopardize his teaching work, and he was also dealing with a pretty horrible situation involving his daughter, who had eloped with a physically abusive bigamist sailor, and he was trying to get her out of that situation. So he just kept his mouth shut until he was confronted and ordered to explain and defend his own religious opinions. And when confrontation came, he didn't lie or back down. And he was, of course, summoned before the council, but he didn't go. A friend warned him before the meeting that they were planning to administer physical punishment so he skipped his appointment and instead wrote a complaint to the governor. Norwood was esteemed in England and a prominent citizen in Bermuda, so if Sale ignored a letter from Norwood the way he had from Beak, it could turn into a scandal, so Sale did stop his prosecution. But right after that, the council accused Norwood of neglecting his duties as a schoolteacher, and forced him to resign from his job. So, they got him anyway. Norwood wrote to William Prynne, explaining not only his own problems, but the situation in general. He said that the congregational rule had split Bermuda into two factions, those who supported the Congregationalist government and those who didn't. And he said that there were genuinely religious people on both sides of the divide. William Prynne worked to compile a pamphlet on Bermuda's plight to push for change and to boost the faltering Presbyterian cause within England itself, and colonists just had to wait for change to be imposed from above, knowing that the Earl of Warwick was himself a Presbyterian. But change was slow, and nothing happened for almost two years. In the meantime, there were beatings, interrogations, jailings, and firings. No marriages, no baptism, no communion. So that's what life in Bermuda was like in 1644 and 1645. In Virginia, April that year began with a minor naval skirmish between parliamentary and royalist ships. Parliament had authorized a fleet of eleven ships to go to Virginia to give supplies and weapons to its Puritan colonists, who were growing more and more restless. One of these ships was Richard Ingalls' Reformation. The ships evidently made their delivery, and at the same time they captured a small royalist vessel. At the same time, English newsletters reported that New England was amassing an army of 10,000 to invade Virginia on behalf of Parliament. Obviously, that wasn't true, but Parliament was clearly starting to pay attention to Royalist Virginia. And clearly, 
if they were strong enough to do that, things weren't going great for the king. In response to the king's faltering cause, William Berkeley declared that Good Friday, which fell on April 18th, be a day of fasting and prayer for the king's cause in England. Did I mention that he was beside himself? Everyone in his family and everyone he considered friends in England were now fighting what seemed to be a losing war. His brothers were royalist leaders, including military officers, and his closest mentors from his courtier days had been Viscount Falkland, Edward Hyde, and Thomas Rowe, all leaders of the royalist party. In fact, it had been them, along with his family members who had invested in the Virginia Company and died in the 1622 massacre, who had encouraged Berkeley's interest in Virginia in the first place. He himself had participated in some of the earliest conflicts leading to war, including uncovering evidence of the secret Scottish alliance and participating in the army plot to break Stratford out of jail. So all of his personal relationships, all of his personal history, all of his personal loyalties supported a cause that seemed to be losing a devastating war, and Berkeley was powerless to help it. Sure, he and the Assembly had tried implementing a policy which only allowed trade with royalist ships, but that had never really been feasible. By 1644, there was only one royalist port left, Bristol, and parliamentary ships far outnumbered and outpowered royalist ones. But a day of prayer. That could work. And on Good Friday, a holiday the Puritans tended to disapprove of. But it never happened. Before dawn on April 17th, Maundy Thursday, a small group of Powhatan warriors knocked on the door of a house around the outskirts of northern Virginia. When one of the men living there opened the door, without a word they smashed his skull. Then they jumped over his body and tomahawked everyone in the house before they had a chance to respond. The warriors then set fire to the house and moved on to the next. At the same time, multiple other groups of warriors were doing the exact same thing, and before the day was over, four to five hundred people were dead, and though the colonists had by this point organized to fight back, the fight continued for several more days with more casualties and more captives taken. Numerically, the death toll was even higher than the 1622 massacre, but the colony was stronger and eight times as populous, so it didn't pose the kind of existential threat as the last one had. But prayers for the king would have to wait. Berkeley ordered an emergency meeting of the General Assembly, and the Assembly ordered a militia to muster by the beginning of June, including every male in the colony from 16 to 60 years old. It chose leaders, each of whom were given 400 acres of land for their service, Roger Marshall, William Claiborne, Abraham Wood, and, and here's the most interesting name on the list, Lieutenant Thomas Rolfe. 
each took command of a different fort or region, leading 60 men each, and the assembly organized and raised money for clothing, weapons, and medical care for the soldiers, as well as care for the widows and orphans of anyone killed in the fighting. They ordered anyone living in a vulnerable area to abandon their properties and move to where they could be protected, and when some ignored the order, preferring to take their chances and protect their little farms and gardens, they sent an armed force to bring them to safety. So two years after Berkeley had signed the peace treaty with the Powhatan, Virginia was yet again at war, and Opechanganoo, who was by now somewhere between 95 and 102 years old, and carried around on a portable bed and needing others to open his eyes for him, had orchestrated his second major surprise attack on the English. Berkeley strictly ordered that colonists not harm the Indians of the eastern shore who hadn't participated in the massacre and who wished to remain at peace, and those orders seemed to have been obeyed. Toward the Powhatan, though, the colonists revived their age-old tactic of corn-burning raids. The real problem was, though, that it was virtually impossible that the timing of the attack was a coincidence. An Anglican holy day, the day before a day of fasting and prayer for the royalist cause? After a period of peace, and at a time when the colonists couldn't expect help from England? Some Puritans had an explanation for this. It was God's judgment for pushing out the New Haven ministers the previous year, and Puritan areas of the colony had been spared because they had supported the ministers. The Royalists had a much more tangible explanation. They said that Puritan settlers had invited the attack by telling the Powhatan that the colonists were alone and vulnerable and couldn't expect support from England, so if Opechanganu wanted to destroy Virginia, it was now or never. The Powhatan no longer posed an existential threat to the English in Virginia, but Parliament might, and if somebody had intentionally invited a massacre, that was a huge problem. To make matters even more suspicious, the only outlying area which had been spared bloodshed was one dominated by Puritans. John Winthrop offered an explanation much more similar to that of the Royalists, but one which absolved Virginia's Puritans of any culpability. He said that when the Powhatan had observed that minor naval skirmish earlier in the month, they had figured out the colonists were vulnerable. And meanwhile, parliamentary newspapers in England reported that the attack had prevented the further expulsion of Puritans from Virginia, which they said would have led to armed rebellion, and therefore the attack had actually, though admittedly damaging, prevented even worse violence. But regardless of the exact how, the massacre had happened, and war followed. And to circle back around to something I said earlier, Thomas Rolfe helped lead the English forces in that war. 
And because this is one of the very few times that he actually does appear in the historical record, I want to take a brief minute to look at his life, because how could I not? He was, after all, the son of John Rolfe and Pocahontas. Last time we discussed him, it was 1617, his mother had just died, and he'd been left with family as his father returned to Virginia, where he himself died five years later. Now, Thomas is 29, married, an increasingly wealthy landowner, and clearly one of the leading citizens of Virginia. Thomas had grown up in England, Suffolk to be precise, raised by his uncle. His uncle had petitioned the Virginia Company for financial compensation for having raised him, but they refused, so his uncle had taken some of the land Thomas had inherited from his father in England as payment. It wasn't quite legal, it wasn't quite right, but Thomas had always wanted to go to Virginia anyway. The land where his mother was born where his father had died, where his half-sister lived, and where he himself had spent his first two years. So he didn't fight his uncle's property grab, just left England as soon as he could when he was about 20 years old in 1635, moved to the part of his father's estate which had been left to him, his sister was also given some, and began growing tobacco. He had always maintained an interest in his Powhatan heritage, too, and soon after arriving he had asked for permission to visit the Powhatan, and in particular his uncle, Obichanganu. The petition was accepted, and though we don't know exactly what happened or what was said at their meetings, we do know that Thomas got to spend at least some time with his mother's people and with Obichanganu. Some people say that he actually grew to have a long-term relationship with some members of the tribes and that he was given land by them, but no documentation of that exists. As he grew older, he became extremely wealthy and a prominent citizen, and he died at about 60, presumably at his Virginia plantation, though there is a rather odd rumor that after his own wife died, he moved to Carolina. And that's about all we do know, though we know about his descendants, and if you want some information about that, I'll post it to the website. But back to the main story. After the war was safely underway, Berkeley went to England, leaving Richard Kemp as his deputy governor. There, he'd get help for Virginia if he could, and give help to the king if he could. And that's where we'll leave Virginia for now, and we'll head north to Maryland. Not too long after Berkeley left for England, Calvert returned from there, bringing his wife and two children and a new commission from Lord Baltimore, confirming the continuation of the proprietary government. He also brought a commission from the king, declaring that colonial imports were helping to fuel the parliamentary war effort and authorizing Calvert to go to Virginia and participate in the seizure of parliamentary ships there. When Calvert arrived, though, he found Maryland in even more chaos than when he left. 
the Susquehannocks had broken their peace treaty and launched a series of colony-threatening attacks, again sensing the weakness of an isolated and, in this case, divided colony. Richard Ingle had been in England, recounting the story of his arrest and attributing it to the fact that he was a Londoner in a stronghold of papists and royalists, and accusing Brent, Luger, and Cornwallis of being the people behind his arrest, not noting that Cornwallis had actually set him free. But worst of all, William Claiborne had retaken Kent Island. The colonists there had always supported him, and the chaos had given him the opportunity to walk in and declare his ownership. So apart from continuing the war with the Susquehannocks, the first order of business was to try to expel Claiborne. When the commissioners for plantations under the Earl of Warwick had defined one of the goals of colonization as being the furthering of the Protestant religion, they had legitimized any Puritan attempts to take over Maryland. Calvert declared Claiborne to be a public enemy and sent a reconnoitering party to evaluate the strength of his settlement and what it would take to push him out but they weren't strong enough to successfully do so. So Claiborne remained on Kent Island. Through the winter, Calvert repeatedly tried to eject Claiborne, but with no success. At the next assembly, Calvert read the King's Commission, but Marylanders worried that it would damage trade and harm their colony. Calvert assured them that he would never allow a commission to be enforced which harmed the colony. The vessel seizure would only occur in Virginia, which was the king's personal possession, and Calvert himself supported a policy of free trade in Maryland. The assembly declared that it would maintain such a policy, and Calvert personally sent a letter to Ingle declaring that Maryland had no qualms with Parliament and that it wanted to maintain free trade. And Thomas Copley, one of the Jesuit priests, wrote a similar message. But Ingle was also contacted by Claiborne, and Claiborne suggested that he and Ingle join forces for a man-of-war cruise to Maryland. And if Ingle participated, Claiborne offered him a sixth of any plunder they got. Ingle agreed to the proposition, and in February 1645, he sailed to Maryland. He arrived on the 24th, and when he came across a Dutch ship trading with the English, he raised his white flag and approached. As he got near enough, he abandoned the pretense of peaceful intentions and ordered the Dutch captain in the name of King and Parliament to come aboard his ship and explain what he was doing in Maryland. And the man obeyed, bringing a handful of Rotterdam-based English sailors with him. He explained the trading purpose of his trip to exchange 
citrus, and sugar for tobacco. But when his explanation was done, Ingle seized him and the men who had accompanied him and refused to allow any of them to reboard their ship. Then he fired four cannons in the direction of the ship and took some of his men to board it before the Dutch could organize and resist. And no one did resist until he tried to enter the cabin, where he found the doors locked, so he called for axes. But realizing the ship was taken and resistance was useless, the men opened the door. And inside, they found a couple of Englishmen, one of whom was Giles Brent. So they seized him, too. They put him under armed guard on the Reformation, and then Ingle put one of his own mates in command of the Dutch ship. As they sailed towards St. Mary's, they ran across another London-based parliamentary vessel. But though Ingle assumed that the ship would join his fleet, instead it left to return to England. But with two ships and a combined 23 cannons between them, as well as Kent Island as a base, Ingle sailed for St. Mary's City. And there, he and Claiborne continued their rebellion, ushering in a period of Maryland history known as the Plundering Time. And next week, we'll continue that story.